0: It's wonderful to see you all. Oh, I was wondering whether I would see you. It is good to see you, here. Jenny. I didn't know you were here today. Good to have you. here, welcome. And um, for those that know Jenny, she's part of the life of the church some years ago, and she went back to New Zealand. She abandoned us. I'm joking. And uh, Charmaine, it's great to have you with us today. Charmaine, we uh, we do love you and honor you, and uh, we know this has been a difficult season for you. We want you to know that no matter what happens, this is your family, and wherever you are in the world. Okay. So I've just come back from India, and you guys probably think, geez, Rob, you're always away somewhere at the moment. And it has been, the last six weeks have been kind of crazy. There was a trip that wasn't supposed to be there that got thrown in, and so it has been a lot of traveling of the last while. But I'm um, um, promising people I'm going to come somewhere and not turn up. And uh, just on that point, while I'm saying that, you know that one of the characteristics of God is faithfulness. And you know what faithfulness means? It literally means this. He does what he says. He's going to do. So if you are a um, volunteer and you put your name down to do something, don't phone in the week and say, I'm not going to be able to make it. Just do what you say you're going to do, and then you're going to be like God. And so, uh, so that's what I try and do as well. And even if it's costly and even if it's it's a difficult time, and um, but to have been, I, I do love going to India. I was in Kodagiri on the weekend with uh, David Ganesha from Lanka came with me and Seho, um I don't think all of you know that we have an Arabic church that meets here in this hall between our morning and our evening services. And Saha leads that church. It's not Well of Life. it's They're called Word of Life. They're like a little bit of a, um, a copycat church, trying to be like us, I think, but an Arabic version. No, I'm joking. Saha and I are really good friends. And I said to him last week before I left, a few days only, I said, why did you come with me to India? And he dropped everything and he, and he came with, and just go back that slide. So this, we're the Leadership Training Time at Kotagiri, and I met these guys here who work with Jeeva, those three guys sitting down there, and um, from your left is um, um, Swapan, Roger, uh, Raju, rather, and um, Vijay. And um, Vijay, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, Vijay traveled four days to get done for this day and a half conference. Now you think I mean like sort of like four days. Vijay traveled four days in the train to get to this conference. amazing guy. He was there, he is there. That's he sent me this message on Monday. He left on Friday. He left on Friday. He says, Still in the train. and uh, That's my little monkey covering his eyes up because I can't even imagine paying that kind of a price. And uh, But he doesn't work in Kashmir. He was a drug addict who got saved, went to Bible school, and now he's an evangelist who plants house churches. And uh, we're really trusting that we're going to have the opportunity to partner with him a bit through Jiva up into Kashmir. We had a great time with the leaders, um, it was quite amazing. I preached on forgiveness and the need for forgiveness and mentioned this thing out kind of a throwaway that sometimes your spouse can be the one that the devil uses to undermine you more than anybody else. And uh, obviously no one nodded with their spouse around at that point. They were oh, no, 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 But then after the meeting, there were so many people that came and spoke to me. <laughs> I had one poster sitting, we were sitting on the tree, he was weeping his eyes out like this. And, um. And genuinely, the need to get over offense and to forgive other people actually is a massive thing. And not just our spouses, of course, but they're the ones that we spend the most time with. And uh, sometimes they do do things that make it really difficult for us to get over. And so, we're um, like honestly, it was just a significant time. Then we went down to, um, to um, Jeeva's church. You go to the next slide, bro. And um, Jeeva has a little church. That's his church building kind of behind us. It's, it's the size of a single garage. That's the size of the church. And um, we were, um, that's his full name. So we call him Jiva, as you can understand why. And um, yeah, we had a great time. I got, to, Saturday afternoon, I got to sit with Jeeva and Susan for three hours on their own and just talk to them about ministry, about their marriage. We, I went to go see a, a place they're going to probably be moving into. And uh, really grateful to God that we get to partner with them. Then after that, we drove five million hours down to Hassan. And um, India is a big place. Luckily, he's got an AC in his car. And we met with um, this church called Christ Church. Um, So did Michelle have been there before. Who went with you last time? Jean and Sue went with last time. And um, really are doing an amazing work, I have to say that. They've got um, loud speakers, really, really loud speakers. I think I might be a little bit deaf on the right side after the time of the worship. And they've got some angry prayers. And uh, and besides that, though, they're doing some amazing work. They asked me if I would um, mind baptizing some people in the river. I said, is the water moving? Is there any, are there any waterborne diseases I've to be conscious of before I come into this water? And obviously the first thing I do is I stand on a rock and cut my foot and everything starts coming into my little wound. And um, we, we baptize the people and as I'm bringing them back, it's stirring up the mud and it's just getting gunkier and gunkier. And I'm standing there and I'm, I'm holding people like this and I had them and I can feel the fish eating at my feet like this. <laughs> anyway. What a privilege. I mean, I, jo- I joke, but I, I, I don't even know what I could possibly have done to deserve the privilege of baptizing people that I don't know. And one of the things they do, I don't know if this is across all India, but they take on a, uh, a kind of a Christian name when they get baptized. So their name is Givasananda Sandaranda Bandakunti whatever it is, and then their new name is like Gideon or something like that, which is super helpful. So when I'm baptizing, I can go out slipping and sliding all over the place, saying it looked like a, like a, um, kind of walking in the river, like, like this, trying to get around without falling with our phones and stuff, and the 70-year-old lady comes to get baptized in the river there, which is an incredible privilege, and then we were in their church, we did a couple of meetings over two days, we met in one of the homes and had a prayer meeting together and prayed over India, it was, it was actually quite a special time, and then, just go to the next one, this is and Sheba that are standing with us here, in the center there, and, um, we have spent uh, we spent we've quite a long time sitting with them talking about what partnership really looks like we don't want to just I kind of feel like we can go into any church in India and um, and they would kind of open the doors because everybody wants partnership and you could have you could have some sort of whatever you could have a platform we don't want a platform we don't want to go to somewhere so we can preach you want to actually partner with somebody around the gospel and so we're going spoke about that uh, you might have seen my Facebook post they dressed me up with a, like a on and a big mess of unbelievably big necklace thing and like a gown and I, and then they, they sat me on the stage like on a throne thing, they put all this on me and they fired these streamer things over me and all, and um, it was very honoring, I don't want to dishonor them for that, but I, I felt embarrassed and I said to them, this is not what we're trying to do in partnership, we're trying to really be friends that take the kingdom of God forward. Anyway, it was, it was great, we, we spent some time together and then that's um, Saha and Jeeva there If you hang around after the meeting today, you'll see Sarah coming in a little bit later to come set up the meeting for the Arabic service. You can greet him. And uh, that's David and his mate at the bottom corner. David is another guy that I've met for the first time in Bangalore, Um, another amazing city. India is full of incredible cities. And um, so we we, we got to spend time with the leaders in the morning, ministered, heard, asked them to share some of their stories, what is happening in Bangalore, what are some of the things we can pray for. So when we gather for our next Ignite Prayer, which happens once a month, the first Wednesday of the month in the evening, or Unite Prayer, which some of you obviously don't know about because I haven't seen any of you there, is 6.30 in the morning on, uh, on a Monday, the third Monday of the month. And so we're going to be picking up some of these things and praying through some of those. And so that's what that is. Why don't we just take a second, I want to pray for India, and then dive into this word for today. Father, we thank you for these men and women in that nation that are working with such faithfulness, with such courage, with such um, a heart of sacrifice. Um, we thank you, Father, for the fact that 12% of the country is supposed to be Christian. That means 120 million potential believers, of God. 120 potential warriors of Christ. 120 people that can step out of their church buildings and into their neighbor's house and share the gospel. 120 million people that can go pray for somebody. 120 million people they can gather in prayer meetings and intercede on behalf of their nation and we believe lord god that you want to see that nation saved we believe lord god not for 120 lord god but hundreds of millions of believers in india and so we intercede on their behalf we thank you for safe travels as a team the many um, hours in the car um, all over the place Lord god and we we, uh, we are grateful no incidents or accidents or anything like that thank you for bringing me and the rest of the team back home safely Pray now for this word as I go into it, Lord God, about the cross and about your Son, and that my prayer is that you, Lord God, will be glorified. No man, only Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to Isaiah um, chapter 52? I'm not going to get to it for a couple of minutes, so I want to kind of set a bit of a context before I dive into the Scripture, but um, the, the one of the things when you read this passage of scripture is the, one of the questions that comes out is who is the suffering servant? Because it talks about the servant all the time. Don't go ahead of me. I'll get to that now. It, um, it, it talks about the servant continually, but it doesn't actually tell us specifically who he is. It doesn't mention him by name, and uh, and so obviously we read it with a certain perspective, and it might seem obvious to us when we read Isaiah 53, but maybe it's something that um, if you knew the gospel, new to church, and you go to this chapter and you look at it, it may not seem so obvious to you, but I was thinking as we were singing this morning, thank you for the cross, thank you for the cross, I think imagine singing, thank you for the guillotine, thank you for the gallows, Lord, thank you for the executioners, acts, because what we're thanking God for is a is an instrument of execution that our Lord and Savior endured, and so what, who is a suffering servant? And it's interesting that um, from the earliest days after the death of Christ even, um, in the Talmud in Sanhedrin 98, because obviously we all read the Talmud, I had to do a little bit of research to figure out what all the stuff was that was going on. Yes, yeah, so I'm sound like an expert, but I'm not. But the Talmud, that was the, 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 the wise rabbis used to keep the, the knowledge verbally and pass it on from one generation to the next. But after the fall of the temple, they realized that they needed to codify this wisdom of the rabbis. And um, so... The Torah is the Old Testament, effectively, and the the Talmud is the the exposition, I suppose, of that. How do we work in law and all of the the law, and and how how society works together, you know. And um, one of the questions they ask in Sanhedrin 98 is, uh, what is the Messiah's name? And there's a few answers given by the rabbis that are recorded. One calls him the leper scholar. He says he is the leper scholar, or the sick one. And he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And the idea here is that these early rabbis understood Isaiah 53 to be a messianic passage. They obviously didn't recognize Christ as the Messiah, but they recognized it was pointing to the Messiah. And it's interesting as well that Isaiah 53 doesn't appear in the regular synagogue calendar. So when they go through the. um, The Deuteronomy Sabbaths, and they they work their way through the books. The one chapter that gets left out is Isaiah 53. And um, the Jewish scholar Claude Montefiore says it like this. He says, because of the Christological interpretation given to the chapter by Christians, it is omitted from the series of prophetical lessons. The mission is deliberate and striking. And today, if you go to find a Jewish rabbi and you ask him about Isaiah 53 and you say, will not you tell me who it's pointing to? The rabbi will probably tell you that it's pointing to um, Isaiah himself or to Israel more likely as the servant of God or maybe even some that were righteous in Israel that are the servants. And I came across this very popular YouTuber. His name is, I I can't remember his name, Goodman Locks. Can you believe that guy's a YouTuber? If you were wondering whether you would be relevant, this dude has got a YouTube channel. I'm not recommending it because he's a bit of a, what's the kind word, chop. And um, so, Goodman goes on and he says, and he starts to explain who the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is. I was trying to find a clip that I'm going to show you in a moment, and I came across him. And he goes on to say, who is the servant, who is the Messiah? And he says, well, the Messiah obviously has to be Jewish, that's clear. And the Messiah has to be from the line of Judah. And so he goes, well, can, does Jesus meet those requirements? And he says, well, let's go look at the book, that book, called the Bible, the New Testament. He says, well, we know that his mother was Jewish, because his mother was Mary, and she was a Jew. And so, tick number one, Jesus is a Jew. He says, but who is the father of Jesus? And he goes, no, no, not stepfather. He says, I know Joseph is a stepfather, but that doesn't count. And Joseph is from the line of Judah, but who is the father? And he goes, and he, he goes like this, as if he's listening, who, who, the holy, the holy what? The Holy Ghost? Oh no, no, there's no ghosts in the line of Judah, he says. And I was showing this to to Sam at the airport in that Bangalore, and I was saying, and he was going, "Is this a joke? You know, I'm trying to do an Arabic accent there, which I'm not doing. But he goes, "Is this a joke? Is this a, are you, is this serious, or is he just spoofing this? He was being deadly serious, mocking the Holy Spirit. And I was thinking, like, how is it possible that that can even happen? And if you if you ever study through the Book of Isaiah and I. And I Honestly, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Grab yourself a, a commentary. Alex has probably does the best commentary on Isaiah. Um, start at the beginning and read your way through chapter by chapter with the commentary. When The first few times I read through Isaiah, I thought to myself, oh, Jesus, please let this book finish. I haven't got a clue what's going on. It's like he's moaning about this. Oak. He's killing this nation, killing this nation. It's like, and uh, then when I went through the commentary, slowly studied it. Even the way the sentence structure fits together, there are times when God talks about an army coming into the nation and the sentence gets, gets shorter and shorter, like the gaping of the, the hooves of the horses as they're coming into the nation as God's declaration is made. But as you go through Isaiah, you will, you will find that it does refer to Isaiah sometimes as the servant. And sometimes Israel is the servant. But it's impossible for the prophet or Israel to be the servant that the, this passage is talking about. Because the servant in Isaiah 53, 53 is a substitute for Isaiah and for Israel. Isaiah writing to Israel says this in verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions. Who was it? Who was it that was disfigured beyond recognition? Who was it that died where his own people thought he was dying for his sins, but actually he was dying for the sins of the world? Who was it that didn't defend himself, but went like a lamb to the slaughter? Who was it that not only was cut off from the land of the living, but continued on and saw the light of life and continued to live? Who was it that bore the sins of many? If you've got your Bibles, let's read together from verse 13 of chapter 52, right down to the end of fifty three. 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep, that before it shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and asked for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. makes intercession for transgressors. The images in that um, clip are hard to look at. I actually wondered whether it was even appropriate to to even show those things. But the reality is that I wanted us to, to catch how appalling this passage from Isaiah 53 actually is, how difficult it is to even read it and understand what's going on in here. There are some of the things in this passage that disturb human sensibilities, even our sense of right and wrong. It says, as I read in verse 10, it was a father's express will to crush his son. It says that an innocent man died for the guilty, and that Jesus was so brutally tortured and so um, uh, uh, beaten that he was left almost unrecognizable. How can it be that it's a father's will not, not to 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 going to be the father allows, more than allows, even wills it that the son, his own precious son, should, uh, should suffer in this way. And you can almost understand people that are outside of the church, that even those in the church, that don't, and this is important, friends, they don't understand the Godhead, that they might call this that's taking place cosmic child abuse. John Piper suggests that up until the coming of Jesus, John Piper is a uh, well-known teacher in the States. That up until the coming of Jesus, the, the Bible is like a piece of music where there's this dissonance, like this discord. There's begging for a final piece to bring it together. And he says it like this. He says, redemptive history is like a symphony with two great themes. The theme of God's passion to preserve and to display his glory. And a theme of God's inscrutable love for sinners who have scorned his glory. And what we see in this passage of Scripture and what we see as we read through all of Scripture is not a Jesus that was caught up in the mass hysteria of a crowd or swept away by the anger of uncontrolled men. We have no power to have done anything to Jesus against his will. He was bruised, the Bible says, and that word seems so utterly inadequate, but he so perfect as well. Because remember in Genesis chapter 3, that I preached about two weeks ago, it says that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. It, it will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus was utterly crushed, that he utterly crush the enemy. But he was bruised, not by us, but by the Father. And he did it to resolve the tension between God's perfection, and I'll explain this, and God's love for the sinners. See, the crucifixion, was the way in which we might be stripped of our filth. Somebody said it this morning. I was talking to Robbie, and he's talking about how, like, how could he do this for me? I'm a, I am do not remember the words he used, but I mean something like scumbag or something like that, um, a wretched sinner. What is it? That, um, it says in the um, Amazing Grace, a wretch like me. I used to sing that song to my children at night, but they would go to sleep, and I knew they didn't understand the word wretch, so I used to replace it with the word rubbish. He would die for rubbish like me. That's what we are. And yet God comes and strips that rubbish off of us, our sinfulness, our willfulness, our rebellion, and instead dresses us in the glory of God's enduring, perfect and pure love. Listen to this though. Jeremiah 9 verse 29, another of the prophets in the Old Testament, says this. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Listen to this. Enemy who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. How do you understand God? How do you know God? That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And it's interesting that when Isaiah was, like, was penning this chapter and in verse ten, the word that he used for there's a word of the Lord to crush him is the same word that Jeremiah uses here for delighting in. And that's why some translations take their verse and they say this, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How difficult is it to even read that? The the authorized version says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. What pleased the Father, what pleases the Son, what pleases the Holy Spirit, was not the cross, was not to see the Son suffer in this way, was not the awful reality of our sin. What pleased them was that God was reconciling and bringing together his white heart holiness, what Jeremiah calls his justice and righteousness, and his steadfast love as they came together on the cross. And Christ on the cross is, is a missing piece of the music that brings that symphony together that everything works to the glory of God. This is an act of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit conspiring together. In fact, when I read these passages of Scripture, I read when, when the Father and, and it pleased God to crush the son or to crush the servant. I read, it pleased God the Father, it pleased God the Son, it pleased God the Holy Spirit to crush God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I know they're distinct persons, but there is absolutely no difference in the way that they view anything. There's, Jesus doesn't have to come to the Father and say, please don't punish them, Dad. That, 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 that implies um, a difference of opinion within the God here. They are perfectly united all the time. And it allows God, as Paul writes in Romans, to be both just and the justifier. He's the one that ensures that justice prevails and the one that ensures that love prevails. And neither one is ever compromised for the sake of the other. Sometimes we go, well, you know what? I would be happy if God was loving but not just. If God is not just and righteous, then God is not truthful. If God is not truthful, then he's a liar. If God is a liar, then how can we depend upon him to do what he says he's going to do for us? There is no such thing as a God of love without justice. And the thing is that God cannot violate who he is. He delights, as Jeremiah says, in his own perfection. He, he contends for his own glory, for his justice, his righteousness, and his steadfast love. And it's not just because justice is objectively better, and it is, but it's because it is who he is. When Moses asked God what his name was, His name was, I am, I am what I am, I can never be anything other than I am, my glory is displayed in who I am, I will never violate who I am, he is a God of justice, and a God of love, and in the cross of Christ, that's why it pleased the Father, and it pleased the Son, that on the cross, those two um, attributes of God might be, and I think, the most basic attributes of God, the most fundamental attributes of God. The second appalling thing about this passage is that an innocent man had to die for the guilty. And Jesus was innocent. The prophet declares in verse 9 that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was trying to tell us that there was nothing in him that deserved death. There was nothing in him that deserved it. Why should Jesus die for us? Well, from his point of view, he didn't have to. And it's important we remember this as well. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit never do anything they don't want to do. I'm not even talking about what they, 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 they need to do. It. They only do what they want to do. Jesus came because he loved us. The Father sent him because he loves us. They wanted to go through this that we might be saved. But from our point of view, he had to die. There was no other way for us to be saved, to be forgiven. In verse 6, Isaiah says this, We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, all, everyone. As I was going to this part, I thought back to that Rabbi, whatever his name is, long bearded Job. What is the, he's the 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 white wizard or something from Lord of the Rings? And I see, like, like imagine mocking the Holy Spirit. Imagine mocking God and sending the seed the divine seed into woman, that we might have a redeemer, not from the line of Adam, but from the line of Christ, set free from the the bloodline of sin to establish a bloodline of innocence. But there is a hard-hearted resistance in some to God's salvation. And even though it's obvious, and, and friends, it is obvious if you give it any amount of time, that there is no other way of salvation. People pursue the way of law and the way of obedience and the way of sacrifice and the way of comparison and various other things there is no law no path of obedience no road of sacrifice no religion on the earth that deals with sin only the gospel and only because it has grace jesus is the sacrificial lamb he is the the scapegoat that matt preached about last week upon whom we place our guilt and our shame that he might go out the city as he did to die in golgotha upon the cross Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And verse 6. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I love the way um, Nicky Gamble explains this verse in his um, Alpha Course. that he talks about um, this being us and we covered by our sin like this and and there there's this sin separates us from God and when Christ comes the sinless one what happens is all the sin of humanity is put upon Christ like this so that we might be sin free and he becomes sin on our behalf and you can know this as a fact that 2000 years ago because of the sin Christ was crushed 2000 years ago because of our sin Christ was chastised and punished and 2000 years ago Jesus was wounded so complete was his scorching and his torture that the Bible says his appearance left many appalled. You you worry about showing pictures like that to your children, don't you? Of, of somebody so cut up, so beaten up. It's, it's, it's I remember even when the, the film first came out, it like, felt like a long time ago, what is it, 15 whatever years ago or something like that. Um, and I, I remember sitting in the, in the theater feeling un- somewhat uncomfortable with the, with, the, with the graphicness of what was going on. Psalm 45 is a wedding ballad. And um, it was probably used um, in some of the royal weddings that took place. And there were many royal weddings, obviously, in the time of Israel. And uh, But the king that it speaks of in Psalm 45, and don't worry, I'm coming back. I'm not going to another preach now. The king that it speaks about is actually quite a unique king. Completely unique king. In verse 6, it says of this king in Psalm 45, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Which is quoted by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 8 and 9. He goes on to quote a little bit more of that psalm. And that passage in, in chapter 1 of Hebrews is a passage about the Son of God. And so this king in Isaiah, I mean in Psalm 45, this in, the, in this wedding ballad, is the, the king, the Son of God, is Jesus himself. And in verse 2 of 45, he is described as literally being the most handsome of the sons of men. And of course, of course, Jesus' the son would naturally be the eternally spotless epitome of beauty. Yet for his bride, this beautiful king would allow himself to be lifted up on the cross and there disfigured. Verse 13 of 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted on the cross. As many were astonished at you, some translations say appalled. His appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. His beard was pulled out from his face. His body was pierced and lacerated by the cat of nine tails of the Romans. He was bloodied, he was beaten, and he was spat upon. And the king, in his beauty, became gruesome and horrifying to behold. But that was the whole point. Out of sheer and boundless love for his bride, Jesus took her sin upon himself with all the consequences of that sin. He took her loveliness that he might give her, that he, sorry, he took, he took her ugliness that he might give her and his loveliness. Michael Reeves this little book called Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves. Honestly, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, it's, it's, it has been, it has stirred something inside of me again so fresh that I'll it. He won't regret it. Michael Reeves puts it like this He says it's in that very moment that he is made most physically appalling that he becomes most dear to us. Christ was never more lovely to his church than when he was most deformed for his church, wrote Richard Sibbs in his willingness to die and take our sufferings upon himself, he reveals the utter vigor and the ardor of his love. It's in the the, the, the disfigurement of Christ that we see our sins being placed upon him. Um, it's like that, um, who's the guy that had the painting that kept his beauty? The painting got uglier and uglier the more he sinned. Dorian Gray. I want to say the diary of Dorian Gray, but it's clearly not that. But uh, in, this, in this story... This guy had some sort of arrangement with the devil where he could live any way he wanted and, and, and nothing would happen to him. But the more he sinned and the more he gave himself over to sinfulness, the uglier and the uglier the painting got. And he would go, as long as it was kept safe and kept secure, he could, the sin wouldn't touch him. The impact of his evilness would impact him. And then somebody one day, if I remember the story correctly, stabs or cuts the painting. And so all the magic that had kept the sin from him releases it and he just becomes this grotesque and eventually dies from his, from his sinfulness. As life, what happens is um, all of our sinfulness is put on in that moment, not just yours, not just mine, but all the sinfulness of all people over all ages is taken and put on Christ and he becomes the, the very personification of our ugliness that we might become, the personification of his beauty the cross, Jesus proves most definitively who he is and what he's like. And that's why even the unbelieving centurion would say as he looks upon Christ hanging on the cross, after he had gambled for his clothes and perhaps mocked him, surely this was the Son of God. On the cross we see the bridegroom loving his bride to death. The Lord of glory giving out his life. The Lord of hosts crushing Satan. The King enthroned. We see Jesus whose very name means God saves.